0: Well, if you've got your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. As you're turning, I want to ask you this question. What is it that makes a person great? What's the definition of greatness? You know, the world has a different way of defining greatness than our God does. Um, The world looks at a person's natural ability maybe a person's intellectual capacity, the type of things that you write down on your resume, such as your achievements and your accomplishments and all such as that. And the world says this is the definition of greatness. And while the world measures greatness in terms of a person's ability or competence, heaven above uses an entirely different metric. It's character, that makes someone great in the eyes of God. It's likeness to Jesus Christ. And really of all the people who have ever lived, Daniel is someone who could truly be described as being a great man. Not great in terms of the world's definition, but great by heaven's definition. And his life stands out like a diamond against the dark backdrop of his day. Daniel was great simply because the hand of God was on Daniel's life. So here in Daniel chapter six, we're going to look at a story this morning that perhaps is the most well-known story in the book of Daniel. In fact, it may even be one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. And in fact, I bet you can probably continue the sentence after I say it's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's that familiar, it's that well known to us. And yet, you know, there exists a subtle danger when it comes to these familiar stories of the Bible. Just because we're familiar with it doesn't necessarily mean that we fully understand its importance. Uh, Even though we're familiar with the story, we can still miss the, the main lesson that this story is intended to convey. Maybe you've heard this statement, familiarity breeds contempt. It's the idea that the more familiar we are with something, the greater the tendency is for us to not appreciate it for what it truly is. We can take it for granted. And so this story of Daniel in this sixth chapter, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, it's a story that illustrates how the world often views a truly righteous life. A life that is deemed great by heaven's standard. And yet it reminds us what can be expected in the life of the person who lives for the approval of heaven rather than the accolades of the world. And Daniel is great simply because he's a man of character. He's an honest man. We know that he's a loyal man. And as we'll see in the opening verses of this text, he's a man who's full of integrity. Now that doesn't mean that his life was without its share of tests. In our study of Daniel up until this point, we've seen that his life has been tested all throughout his days in Babylon. He's lived as a stranger in a foreign land, a totally foreign context. He's surrounded by a pagan people who do not hold his convictions, who do not worship his God or hold his faith. And yet Daniel is resilient through it all and he shines like a beacon of hope at sea. Uh, so when we think of his life, maybe the first thing that comes into our mind is this, this notion of, of his courage. He's a courageous man who's swimming upstream against a cultural current of unbelief. And while it's true that he is indeed a courageous man, uh, his courage came from somewhere. It didn't come from himself, but rather it came from the God who empowered him wasn't so much his courage that made him great. Daniel's a man who's a servant of God. He's a man who knows God personally. A man who walks in integrity and faithfulness. He's a man of faith who had an uncompromising moral strength about his life. Now, listen, Daniel is not going to be thrown into the lion's den because of something that he did wrong. Daniel's going to be thrown into this den of lions because of something that he did right. Now, that may not make sense to us. It really doesn't make sense because in our mind we say, well, uh, a person does wrong, they need to be punished. But if a person does something that's right, that person needs to be rewarded. But you see, we often forget that we live in an upside-down, backwards world and things are not the way that they ought to be because it's very true that in the world, uh, wrong often gets rewarded. While those who do the right thing and those who try to serve God, at times, they become the recipient of difficult circumstances. Uh, That's Daniel. Uh, No matter the outcome, though, Daniel believes that compromise in his faith is never an option for a child of God. Because he believes that it's better to be in a den of lions in the will of God than to be in a comfortable palace outside of the will of God. I'd rather be in a furnace... I'd rather be in a lion's den knowing that I was in the will of God than to be at ease in this world totally outside of God's will. So if you've got your Bible open there, Daniel chapter 6, let's begin reading with verse number 1. And I want to read just through verse 10 as we begin to take up this story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Verse 1 begins by saying that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king may suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, let me tell you what these guys are doing here at this point. Uh, they've, they've went after Daniel, they've tried to dig up some dirt on Daniel in terms of his job and the discharge of his responsibilities for the king, but Daniel's a man of impeccable integrity. There was no dirt to be found, nothing that they could dig up on him. So they come up with this plan to uh, manipulate the law and to manipulate the king, to get the king to pass a decree to make Daniel's faithful religious practices illegal. And they know that Daniel would never compromise in his faith and so they're trying to use the law in their favor to do away with Daniel. Okay, now that's what's going on here. Verse six says that these high officials and satraps, they came by agreement to the king and said to him, "O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, The counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God just as he had done previously. Daniel, fully aware of the situation, fully aware of of what was going on, fully aware of this new injunction that made his faithful practice of prayer illegal for the next 30 days. He doesn't panic. He doesn't cave in to despair. He doesn't give in to protest. He simply goes about living his life just as he always had done in obedience to his God. Now, from these verses, I want to speak from this subject this morning, uh, the portrait or the profile of a great man. I believe that there's some lessons from Daniel's life in these first 10 verses that illustrate greatness, what it means to be great from heaven's point of view. Now, we'll get to the lion's den later on, but for the time that we have this morning, I want us to really consider these events that led up to the lion's den. Why is it that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den in the first place? Now most of us can tell you, we can tell you the the, the story of Daniel in the lion's den all day long and how God brought about a supernatural deliverance of his servant, but yet do we fully understand why Daniel was thrown into the lion's den to begin with? Well that's what I want us to look at as we consider these events that led up to the den of lions and it all had to do with Daniel's faithful character. What is it that makes Daniel great, truly great? Well, notice a few things from these verses with me. Uh, To begin with, notice how Daniel is distinguished among his peers. The Bible says that Daniel is set apart. He's distinguished among his contemporaries. Uh, This is uh, what we see in the first three verses or so. And you'll notice that chapter 6 begins with a description of the government structure that King Darius or Darius wanted to have in place. Now who is this Darius? Well, he is Darius the Mede who receives the kingdom after Belshazzar the Babylonian was killed in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the story of the handwriting on the wall and how Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. And so Daniel has has been in Babylon for many, many years at this particular point. Uh, He has faithfully served God. He's faithfully served a succession of Babylonian kings. And now Daniel is going to be found faithful serving in the court of King Darius uh, of the Medes and the Persians. Now chapter 6 says that the king begins dividing his kingdom up under the jurisdiction of various satraps. Uh, these were about a, roughly 120 governors or so. Uh, his kingdom was organized in, in, in different uh, jurisdictions under these leaders. And those leaders were then organized under three higher officials who reported to King Darius himself. Why does the king want this structure to be put in place? Well, the end of verse 3 says, so that the king might suffer no loss. It was important for the king to have faithful men Uh, around himself. It was important that he had trustworthy men in positions of leadership who could lead others. Corruption in government is not a modern invention. (laughs) If we think political scandal is just true of our time, then we've totally missed uh, history because it's true of every form of government. It's true of every era of human history. Uh, Where you have people, you find uh, sin natures. And there are people who sin and there are people who use their position to try to skim from the top, to line their own pockets, to feather their own nest, or whatever other euphemism you want to call it. So the king is needing some trustworthy men. And and, and it comes as no surprise to us that verse 2 says Daniel was one of these three higher officials. So trustworthy of a man is he, that he becomes distinguished above all of these other officials and satraps. Uh, There was something about Daniel that made him stand out. We would say that he was a cut above all of the rest. He had something that the others lacked. And because of this this it factor that was true of his life, Darius planned uh, to sort of set him over the entire kingdom as a co-regent. Maybe an early form of a prime minister. Someone who is second in command to the king himself. Kind of reminds me of Joseph in the book of Genesis as Joseph is taken and he is promoted to a place of being second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. Well, A similar thing is about to happen in Daniel's life. So a few things about his, really the fact that he's distinguished above everyone else. Why is that? Well, It all has to do, first of all, with his inward attitude. There was something different about Daniel's attitude that he possessed inwardly. Verse 3 says that an excellent spirit was in him. It's not the first time that that statement is made about Daniel. Uh, It was made of him back in chapter 5, verse 12. The fact that he was known to be a man who had an excellent spirit, a man who possessed knowledge and understanding, a man who could interpret dreams and solve problems. The idea is the hand of God was upon Daniel's life. He's a spirit-empowered man. He has an excellent spirit. That speaks of his inward attitude. Now, by the way, if if anybody had an excuse to have a rotten attitude, it would have been Daniel. I mean, think about all that this guy has experienced in his life. As a young man, he's taken from his friends. He's taken from his family. He's taken from his native country, forced to live out the remainder of his days as an exile in Babylon, and chronologically, several decades have now passed as Daniel has lived his life in Babylon. He's no longer a young man, but at this point, he's in the fourth quarter of his life. Most Bible scholars say that Daniel is pushing 80 years of age at this point in chapter 6. Most of his life has been spent there in exile. I mean, think about the hardships. Think about the accusation. Think about the challenges that he experiences in his life. Uh, He's part of a minority in a culture that does not share his values, that does not worship his God that does not respect his faith convictions, but no matter the circumstances of his life, Daniel is found faithful. And the Bible says that he has an excellent spirit in himself. (laughs) What kind of attitude do you have as a believer right now? Hmm? Does everybody have to agree with you for you to have a good attitude? The things have to be hunky-dory, everything going well in your life for you to have a good attitude. I mean, do all your bills getting paid, the money's still coming in, things are fine at work, things are fine at home, things are fine in your marriage, things are going well at church. Does everything just have to be perfect in your little world in order for you to have a good attitude? I'm afraid that for a lot of us, that's the case, but not for Daniel. Here's a man who's faced challenges. Here's a man who's living his life in a difficult place, but Daniel's got a good attitude about it all. Why does he have a good attitude? I'll tell you why. Because he's looking to God who is his source of strength. His eyes are firmly fixed toward heaven, not his circumstances. And that's the only explanation for his attitude at this point. You go all the way back to his youthfulness as he's being forced from his homeland. Uh, Do you think that Daniel knew at the time as those chains were dragging him across the desert to Babylon? You think that he knew what God was doing in his life? You think that he had any idea how God was really orchestrating the events of Daniel's life to bring him to Babylon, to bring him to a place of promotion for such a time as this? He may have had somewhat of an idea that God was in control of his life, but but listen, Daniel was completely clueless as to the events of his life that would transpire. He had no idea the course that his life would go the next six decades in Babylon. But now that he's 80, now that he's got some years under his belt, he's able to look back and he's able to see the hand of God, how God has been faithful throughout all of his days, and he's able to see his life with a little bit more spiritual clarity. It's the, it's the principle of Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, in that passage, Paul says, we know that all things work together. It doesn't say we see how all things work together for our good. We may not be able to see how pain works to our advantage in the midst of the crisis, but we've got a promise that we can believe and sink our teeth into no matter what. That's what Daniel's doing, and that's why Daniel has an excellent attitude. So his inward attitude is a cut above the rest, but then notice his outward appraisal. How was he outwardly appraised by others? Uh, what do others find in his life whenever his life is the subject of investigation? Well, verse four says that no ground for complaint or any fault could be found in Daniel. He's a man who told the truth. Uh, he had been entrusted with much because he was honest. He was blameless. When his life was placed under the microscope, no ground for fault or complaint could be found in his life because he's faithful. No error could be found in him. When you opened up his closet, no skeletons fell out. We would say that Daniel is the same man publicly that he was privately. He's a man of integrity. You know what integrity is? It's doing the right thing when nobody else is watching. Integrity is who you are in the dark when all of the lights are off. It could be said of Daniel that there was not a hint of a divide between his public life and his private life. Daniel was not a hypocrite. He was not one thing to this person and a different thing to this other person, but he's a man of integrity. No ground for complaint could be found in his life. So that was his outward appraisal. His inward attitude is excellent. But then notice his upward ambition or aim. And you see this as you get down to verse number 10. And really, this, this is the secret for his attitude. Uh, this is the secret behind his, his, his appraisal, his integrity. Verse 10 says that prayer and devotion characterized his life throughout his days in Babylon. Babylon. I mean, whether he was standing before the king or whether he was on his knees in private before God, Daniel was the same. He wasn't fickle. He wasn't floating around on a breeze. He wasn't steeped in the spirit of the age that marked his generation. Daniel was in Babylon, but Daniel was not of Babylon. He'd lived through all kinds of cultural upheaval. Kings had come and gone. Empires had risen and fallen. Despite all that had changed uh, in in the culture and the circumstances that surrounded him, Daniel remained constant and consistent. And verse 10 will tell you the, the explanation behind it all. He's a man of prayer and worship. His feet were on the ground, but his eyes were toward heaven. His mind and his heart was centered around the purposes of God. This is Colossians 3 verse 2 played out in his life. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I mean, we as believers are called to fix our minds and our thinking, to focus all of our affections with intentionality on the things of God. It doesn't just happen by... It's easy for us to get distracted with all the junk that's going on in life around us. And if that's what you're focused on, then don't be surprised when you live with a heavy cloud of discouragement. But you see, as a believer, when you set your mind and your affection on heavenly things... And you're able to live as Daniel lived his life, above the fray, he's not a man who's living his life with his head in the clouds. You know, he's not, he's not distant and, 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 and uh, he's not slogging through his days without any ambition. He's a man who goes about his task with, with passion in his gut. He's faithful in all of his responsibilities. He's a man who has a godly work ethic, but the explanation behind it is his focus. It's the fact that his mind is firmly fixed on heaven. God is the subject of his thoughts and his affections and his desires. You ever heard this cliche, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? (laughs) I've heard people use that expression. They say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those heavenly-minded Christians to the degree that I'm no earthly good. And I understand what a person means when they use that expression. It's this idea that I don't live with my head in the clouds, but I go about my tasks, and I'm engaged in the world around me and that kind of thing. But, you know, I've discovered that usually the opposite is is true. More often than not, it's easy for us to be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good at all. The church of our day, we can become so earthly-minded and so preoccupied with the stuff of this life that we're really no heavenly good. The salt can lose its saltiness. Our light can be hidden under a basket if we're not careful. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. The apostles the early church, those who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, or the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, uh, William Wilberforce. It was William Wilberforce who who spearheaded the abolitionist movement in England, and thank God it made its way across the sea to the United States. What was his motive for living? He's a man who had his eyes on heaven, a heavenly-minded man, a man who loved his God, a committed Christian. All of these left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Now listen to this indictment. C.S. Lewis said, it's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Wow. Wow. So the irony is, the more that we think about the next world, the more that we think about heaven, as Christ is the object of our affections and our loyalties and the devotion of my life, the more effective I'll become in this life. That's Daniel. And so this explains why he is distinguished among his peers. Now there's a second thing that I want you to see in his life, and it's this. Notice how Daniel is despised by his enemies. Now you'd think that the life of a man of integrity, a humble man like Daniel, a heavenly minded man like Daniel, a man who wants to live at peace and be at peace with others and serve and honor his God faithfully, you would think that that type of a man would have a comfortable life. You would think that everybody would love this type of person and want to be around this type of person. But that's certainly not the case, because when you live with conviction in a world of compromise, you become a marked man or a woman. It's a lie that says men and women of conviction are always comfortable in this life. In reality, the opposite is true, living a life of integrity. And righteousness will often put you at odds with a world that hates those things. Daniel is a godly man, but it meant that Daniel made some enemies along the way. And so it will always be true of a faithful man or woman whose life points others to Jesus Christ. The enemy will take notice of such a life. The enemy will target such a life and come against such a life. And there will be difficulty for that person. So, for some reason, Daniel becomes the target of his co workers. Now, notice a couple of things here. Notice their envy, first of all. Verse 4 says, Then the high officials sought to find grounds for a complaint against Daniel. It was then, which connects verse 4 with the last statement of verse number 3. The king planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. Daniel was due for a promotion. Daniel was about to be promoted to the second place of leadership in the kingdom. And it was then that these other high officials and satraps began to target Daniel. You want to know why? Because Daniel was a threat to their little kingdom. I imagine that some of those officials had made a pretty good lucrative career off skimming from the top. And a man of integrity, when he becomes their boss, then all of that stuff kind of gets cut out. And so their bottom line is affected. And when a person's bottom line is affected, don't be surprised when they come at you with both barrels. And so they perhaps become envious of Daniel. They try to dig up some dirt on Daniel with regard to the kingdom. And that simply means they were looking uh, for a way to trap him. They were trying to find some shady business dealings. They were trying to find some questionable reimbursements. They were looking at his time sheets and trying to see where he had cheated on his time card and all of that. But the text says they couldn't find a shred of evidence or any corruption in his life. <laughs> now, let me ask you this question personally. What if, what if this gets a little bit closer to home what, if anything, might be found in our lives were we to become the subject of such a heavy investigation? I think about these Supreme Court nominees and all that they have to go through in terms of their investigation that goes into them before they get appointed to the bench. What we saw a couple years ago with Brett Kavanaugh as his family was drugged through the mud by those who were trying to use political purposes to their, uh, their ends and that kind of thing. And the, Man, it just gets dirty, doesn't it? politics and principles these shouldn't be mutually exclusive but they're looking at Daniel under the microscope and they don't find anything if there's ever an example from the old testament of what we ought to look for in our elected officials those who would occupy offices of leadership and government and that kind of thing it's the life of Daniel You know, Christian men and women ought to be the absolute best citizens. Christian men and women ought to be the absolute best employees, the best employers. We know we're not perfect, but we know that we're accountable to a holy God who sees what we do in secret, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so when the curtain is pulled back and our inner life is exposed and on display for all to see, is there anything in my life or your life that we have reason to be ashamed of? What about your financial dealings? Are you a man or woman of integrity when it comes to your financial holdings? Do you look to cheat and get by with with, with stuff on your taxes? What about your conversations that you have with other people? What about your internet history, your search history? If all of that was under the microscope and you were under investigation, what would there be for others to see? Well, when Daniel's put under the microscope, there's nothing. He's found faithful. He's a man of integrity. So what do they do? They come up with plan B, and so their envy then leads to a conspiracy, and that conspiracy is outlined in verses 5 through 9. They realize they can't trip Daniel up with regard to his work ethic or his integrity that he brought to his job. So, to bring a charge against him, they would have to cause conflict between his faith and his career. And so, they contrive an evil plan that involved engineering a clash between the law of God and the law of the state. And if Daniel had to choose between obedience to God versus obedience to the king, they knew that loyalty to God would come first. And by the way, it's interesting to me that his enemies knew this about him, that he's a man who is so principled, who's so surrendered and sold out to the call of God on his life that his enemies knew that he wouldn't compromise his convictions. Would to God that the world would know that about the church in these days? that no matter how difficult the culture tries to make it, no matter how painful an unbelieving world around us tries to make it on the church, that they know we're men and women of principle who are sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what. But I'm afraid that we're all too prone to capitulate these days. Go around with whatever's culturally apropos and popular Whatever the crowd's doing, that's what we've got to do because, man, we don't want to make waves. And so verse six says they all come by agreement to the king, that means they all got together, they were in cahoots, they all got together and come up with this conspiracy. The only person they left out was Daniel. And they basically convinced the king that all of his officials were on board with this deal Man, just signed this order that nobody petitions any man or any god for a period of 30 days but you, King Darius. And so the appeal to the king's pride, he's viewing it as a means of uniting his kingdom. Uh, it's the same thing Nebuchadnezzar had done before him with his golden image. It's the same thing Belshazzar had done when he took the utensils from the temple and brought them into his feast. Now Darius is convinced by his officials to put himself in the place of God, to use the law to his own advantage, saying, I'm the one that people should look to for all things. I am sovereign Lord. And yet he's totally oblivious to the fact that his officials are merely using this injunction to cover their own murderous, evil desires because they hate Daniel. So what does Daniel do? One final thing about his life is verse 10. Notice how he's devoted in his worship. He's distinguished among his peers, despised by his enemies, but Daniel is devoted in his worship. And the Bible simply says that when he knew the document had been signed, when he knew the consequences for civil disobedience at this point, when he knew that continued faithfulness to pray would put him at odds with the government of King Darius, with the injunction of Darius, what does Daniel do? He goes to his house where his windows were open toward Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees three times a day. He prayed and gave thanks before God just as he had previously done. You know, there were several ways that he could have responded to the king. I mean, I think about how he could have protested it. He could have, he could have told everybody how unfair it was. He could have convinced himself that it was only 30 days. I mean, just for 30 days, I don't have to pray. I can just pray in private. Just for 30 days and I'll get through this 30 day period and then I'll go right back to the way that things always were. It's beginning to sound familiar, isn't it? There's none of that. Verse 10 says, Daniel is intentionally devoted When he knows the document has been signed, he goes home to do exactly what he had always done before. He's not responding in crisis mode here. He just simply continues to live his life the way that he had always lived his life as a believer. No matter what was changing in the law and the culture around him. Y'all tracking with me? no matter how unpopular or how illegal or how poo-pooed upon it was. Daniel, you can't do this! You can't pray! Man, Daniel just goes home and he says, you know, I'm just gonna serve God the way that I always have. I'm going to pray, I'm going to worship because I know that there is a higher king to whom I'm accountable than King Darius. Let me tell you something, I want to be the best model citizen that I can be, but whenever government usurps the role of God, I'm going with God. Believers in Rome had to do it. You know, Rome was an inclusive society for the first century church. Why, Why did believers get thrown to the lions in the days of Roman persecution? Especially when you consider that Rome was a tolerant society for the most part. I'll tell you why. It was because they refused to buy into the pluralistic spirit of Rome. They refused to burn incense to Caesar and to say Caesar is Lord because they knew that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it was the message of exclusivity that led to the persecution of the early church in the days of Rome. Why is Daniel despised by these who were his enemies in Babylon? It's because of the message that Daniel's life preached. That the gods of Babylon are no gods. That there is only one true and living God who's sovereign over all. Babylon was a pluralistic society. Babylon worshipped multiple deities. But you see, Daniel's life says there's only one true and living God. Darius ain't him. Marduk is not him. And that put him at odds with the culture around him. And the world we live in, for the most part, will tolerate us saying we believe in God. We're church-going people. Inasmuch as we practice our faith within these four walls, But the very moment that we bring our faith into the public sphere, government, the workplace, the school systems, the ideological worldview that the world operates from, when we speak to those issues and we're influential in those arenas of life, don't be surprised when the claws come out. And we're subject to Hostility. Because it's not us, folks, it's who lives in us. Jesus was light that came into the world. And the Bible says that the darkness hates the light. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So here's a great man. You want to know what greatness is? Here you have it illustrated in vivid form here in these 10 verses in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's great not because of his achievements, not because of anything that he himself has done. He's great simply because of the hand of God on his life, the righteousness of God that's true and characteristic of his life. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? I've got so much more I could say, but I've got, to, I've got to close now. But why is it that Daniel's enemies go after him with a vengeance? And why is it that he's going to be cast into a den of lions? It all has to do with his faithfulness. If we're not careful, we can operate under the assumption that faithfulness to God always leads to favorable circumstances in this life. It may be true. When you're living in a Christian culture, for the most part, it will be true. But whenever the cultural winds change and you're a believer living in an anti-Christian age where a spirit of animosity and hostility is directed toward the values that you hold dear, then listen, doing the right thing may very well be attacked, vilified. You may find yourself thrown into a den of lions when you have to stand for what's right at work. You may be ostracized, left out because you're not willing to go along with the crowd. But you know, isn't that the life of Jesus? If ever there was a great man who ever lived, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in every way, sinless. When his life was under the microscope, there was nothing to be found. Daniel's a man of integrity, but Daniel wasn't a perfect man. Daniel was a sinful man in need of a Savior just like me and just like you. But Jesus, oh, Jesus is perfect in every way. And yet Jesus was attacked, falsely accused, crucified to a cross, buried in a den of death in my place and in your place but you know the wonderful truth of the story of daniel is that daniel is delivered from the lion's den in that way daniel has somewhat of a resurrection aren't you grateful that jesus christ when he was buried in the den of death on the third day he burst the bonds of death and came out of the tomb in victory and in power And he's ascended to a place of greatness and rule and kingship. And he's ruling and he's reigning. And one day he's coming again. So you get discouraged as you live for Christ in difficult times, difficult circumstances. Listen, look to the heavens. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the true measure of greatness. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, how it convicts me how it exposes things in my own life, Lord, that I've got to surrender to your grace in obedience to Christ. Greatness is not what we achieve for ourselves. It's not what other people say about us or what they think about us. Lord, true greatness is Christ-likeness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God says is great. And so righteousness in the Christian life Lord, we know that it's not achieved righteousness, it's received righteousness. And those who trust Christ as their Savior have received the righteousness of God. And this has cause for great confidence and encouragement in our lives as believers. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.